0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusler coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a warm and sunny day in Los Angeles. The sun is out and not a cloud in the sky. What you're about to hear is a talk I gave last Sunday at the International Buddhist Meditation Center where I live. The talk was titled, The Eightfold Path. So without further introduction, my talk on the Eightfold Path, given at the International Buddhist Meditation Center. So the talk today is going to be on the Eightfold Path. Now this is the journey every Buddhist takes, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Theravada, the Eightfold Path is part of the um, Four Noble Truths. The first truth is, just to remind everyone, that life is very difficult. We're born, we get sick, we get old, and we die. Um, And if that's not bad enough, there are a lot of things in this world that we don't like, and a lot of people in this world we don't like. And a lot of places in this world we don't want to be in. And we are around those people, around those things, and in those places far too often. And if that's not bad enough, the stuff we really like, cherish, love, and want to hold on to will be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. So being born a human being is a difficult proposition. We don't look at it as God's creation. We look at it as the result of past karma. The second truth is, the reason we suffer so much as human beings is because we're selfish. We have a thirst and a craving to hold on to all the good stuff in our life and push away all the bad stuff. But because we're born... In original ignorance, as opposed to original sin, we never quite get it right. We never quite have a perfect hair day. Well, this guy does. (laughs) But for the rest of us, it's a challenge. The third truth is, uh, there's an answer to this human suffering. There's an answer that even goes beyond every deity that's ever been known to humankind. And that answer is nirvana. One of the things that struck me about the Buddhist path was the fact that the Buddha believed in the gods of India. And yet he also realized the gods of India couldn't end or wouldn't end human suffering. And he took it upon himself to find the answer. And he took it upon himself to share that answer with anyone who wanted to listen. And he did that for 45 years. So this Eightfold Path is the journey we're all on. This is the journey that leads us to the awakening. And I like the idea that the word Buddha means one who is awake, not one who is perfect. So what did he awake to? He awoke to his perfection. The Buddha was already perfect, just like each one of us. The problem with our perfection is it's locked in our past karma. It's like a crust on this beautiful jewel. And the Buddhist path is designed to chip away at this crust until finally our perfection shines through. And I like that message. That means even though most Buddhists talk about how difficult life is, What they're saying in a very real way is that we are already perfect. We just need to wake up to that perfection. And the Buddha is one who awoke to his perfection. So what is this Eightfold Path? What is this journey we're about to take or have already taken? Well, the Eightfold Path has eight path factors. I guess that didn't need to be explained. The eight path factors are... Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category of personal discipline, we find three path factors right speech, right action, and right livelihood. What I came to understand about the Eightfold Path was this. It's really designed to change our karma. Karma is everything we think. Karma is everything we say. Karma is everything we do. The first part of the Eightfold Path personal discipline deals with our speech karma and our action karma. So, what do we need to become aware of when we speak? We need to become aware of the fact that we may be speaking unskillfully and creating consequences in our future. The Buddha said, try not to speak in a harsh way, in a false way, in a malicious way try not to get involved with idle chatter or gossip. Those four kinds of speech lead to more suffering in the world. Those four kinds of speech could then be classified as unskillful because they don't lead to less suffering. The Buddha said there are three kinds of action that seem to lead to more suffering rather than less. They are taking a life, taking what is not given, and sexual misconduct. Taking a life is probably obvious to all of us that if we take another's life, especially a human life, we're preventing them from achieving their full perfection in this lifetime. And it's hard to say how many more lifetimes it will take until they're reborn again as a human being and have the chance to come into the teachings of the Buddha and achieve their perfection and end their suffering, end their karma, and end all future rebirths. So taking a human life creates an awful lot of suffering for the person whose life is being taken, but also for the person who's taking the life. But we can go even further than that, and say every creature on this earth, for whatever reason, doesn't want to leave. And you would think if they were logical... If those cockroaches knew what we knew, they'd probably all commit suicide. Why would they want to live? And yet, if you happen upon a cockroach in a dimly lit kitchen, they run because they know you're about to take their life. So we can start with human beings and say, Today, I am not going to take any human life and walk out this Zendo door, and most of us will succeed. And when we get really good at not taking a human life, we can then say, I'm going to challenge myself today to not kill any lions and tigers and bears. And most of us can walk out that front door and succeed at that as well. But the real challenge arises when we say to ourselves, today I'm not killing any ants, flies, or mosquitoes. And how difficult is that? Taking what is not given is important in a consumer culture like ours because we all think we own the stuff we use. And we don't. We're simply using the stuff we think we own. But if somebody takes the stuff we think we own and are really just using, it causes us to feel uncomfortable. It causes us to feel that our boundaries uh, have been violated. That someone doesn't appreciate the fact that we own it, and they don't. Now, to give you a real-life example, a few months ago, I found myself at El Pollo Loco on the corner. It was a hot day. I had been putting off my lunch until later in the afternoon. I had a few things I wanted to finish, and I was hungry. So I decided on the two-piece meal with flour tortillas. And I took my tray to the table, and I started to eat my meal. And and I I realized I had been so thirsty, I had already drunk the glass of Coke that I had started with. And I went back to refill. And when I came back to the table, my chicken breast was missing. And I was really sort of confused. Who would take food off a person's plate in a restaurant? And then I happened to glance at the door, and there was a homeless fellow, and I saw in his right hand my chicken breast. And now he's making his way across the asphalt parking lot. And I wasn't sure what I needed to do, because I was angry and I was hungry. Should I confront him? Should I curse him? Should I take my chicken breast back? After all, I did have the receipt. (laughs) Well, I opened the door and I yelled, You can have it. It's yours. I'm giving it to you. Enjoy it. He didn't even turn back to say thank you. He just kept walking. But what I noticed in that moment of generosity was the fact that it brought me back into balance. I was able to accept the fact now that my chicken breast was gone, not because I was violated, not because it was stolen from me, but because I gave it away. I was practicing generosity after the fact. Ownership can be very difficult to deal with. If you look at all the things you think you own... And say to yourself, I'm so lucky I get to use all of this. The burden is lifted. Sexual misconduct is a difficult topic in Los Angeles because in Los Angeles everything is okay. We have certain segments of our population that are engaged in this activity or that activity, and isn't life wonderful that we can do anything we want? We are liberated. It is 2007 after all. But what did the Buddha say? In Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, The Eightfold Path, which is available on Urban Dharma as a free download, buddhabooks.info, he says it this way. He says there are four kinds of sexual misconduct we need to avoid if we want to live a Buddhist life. We need to avoid having sex with people who are married. That creates a lot of suffering in community. We need to avoid having sex with people who are engaged. That creates a lot of suffering in community. We need to avoid having sex with children. That creates a lot of suffering in community. We need to avoid having sex with people against their will. That creates a lot of suffering in community. That's pretty much what the Buddha told lay people. Those were the boundaries he gave them. If you wanted to express yourself sexually, try to live within those boundaries, and harmony will be created in community. Right livelihood is a difficult call for some Buddhists because they think simplicity is the ideal, and I would have to say they are absolutely correct. Having a simple life leads to peace but as a wise person once said, it's much easier to be nobody after you've been somebody. I was giving a talk at USC and there were a few business majors in the audience and one young man who had been a Buddhist his whole life stood up and said, Reverend Kusla, is it okay to make a lot of money if you're a Buddhist? And I said, oh Yes. Think how much more money you can give away. That made his parents very happy, I'm sure. So we start our Buddhist path by watching what we say and watching what we do, trying to redefine our karma at a speech level and an action level. And now we come to the most interesting part of the Eightfold Path for some people, and that is meditation mental purification there are three path factors in that category they are right effort right mindfulness and right concentration when the Buddha talked about right effort he wasn't talking about physical activity he was talking about mental activity he was talking about the awareness needed to start a meditation practice he said prevent unskillful thoughts arising he said abandon unskillful thoughts that have already arisen he said develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen he said maintain skillful thoughts that are already there as a Buddhist we need to define skillful and unskillful an unskillful thought would be one that's rooted in lust greed, hatred, and delusion. A skillful thought would be one that's rooted in love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. When we start to practice right effort, we simply become aware of our thoughts and categorize them in these eight general categories. Skillful, unskillful, lust or love, greed or generosity, anger or compassion, wisdom or delusion. Now, just the other day, I found myself at Trader Joe's in West L.A. I went in to get a few things, but I found their cookie shelf. A variety of cookies, packaged nicely and appealingly, my desires arose. I couldn't figure out whether I should get two or three packages. After all, I had a long week ahead of me. And when I reflected on that thought, I realized it was based in greed. That I was actually going to be thinking about buying three packages of cookies just for myself. And a half gallon of milk. And I'd go into sugar ecstasy every evening. <laughs> If that thought had been rooted in generosity, I'd say, I'm buying two, one for me and one for you. So I became aware of greed rather than generosity. I ended up buying one package of cookies. But it's not that far away, I can always go back. That's how our meditation practice starts, becoming aware of how we think. Are we skillful? Are we unskillful? Creating more suffering, suffering, creating less suffering. Two kinds of Buddhist meditation. Samatha, Vipassana, tranquility, insight. The Buddha was taught how to do tranquility meditation by the yogis of India. Deep states of concentration, jhana, are the outcome of this particular form of meditation. It allows us to be in peace and comfort and have perfect balance and equanimity. But the problem the Buddha saw with this form of meditation is that it only worked while you're sitting in the zendo or under a tree and all the conditions are correct to go into deep states of concentration. And I must say in this neighborhood it is difficult to go into those deep states of concentration because we have dogs barking, gun shooting, helicopters, and fire engines up and down Vermont all day and all night. I think of those sounds as the breath of the dragon. We need to find an almost perfect environment to go into those deep states of concentration, and downtown Los, Los Angeles may not be the correct environment. The other form of Buddhist meditation the Buddha did was insight meditation. This allowed him to liberate himself. This allowed him to awake to his perfection. He never had to suffer again. He ended his karma. He never had to be reborn again. Insight meditation is what he did up to his nirvana, but... Interestingly enough, I think he continued to practice jhanic meditation, concentration meditation, until his last breath. He used those deep states of equanimity and peace to bring his body back into balance. His mind was always in perfect balance after nirvana. But his body was rooted in samsara, just like our bodies are. Now, we can go to the local drugstore and purchase a variety of medications to bring our body back into balance. But back in his time, he had urine and spices. I'm thinking, give me the disease I don't want to cure. He was able to bring his body back into balance through deep levels of concentration, through deep levels of jhana. In fact, in the Pari Nibbana Sutta, it said he went into the 4th Ajana and then passed away. So those two forms of meditation work together. One isn't better, one isn't worse, they're simply different, but they work together. The Buddha did both. And finally we come to the wisdom aspects of the Eightfold Path, and if you were here last week you heard one interpretation of Buddhist wisdom. I have a couple other interpretations of Buddhist wisdom. Buddhist wisdom according to the Eightfold Path, but one of my favorite models of Buddhist wisdom is the Heart Sutra. The wisdom of emptiness. What a profound document that is. And how short and easy to memorize And it it has the entire wisdom category located in its heart, which I suppose is why they call it the Heart Sutra. But the wisdom of the Eightfold Path is a bit different. The wisdom of the Eightfold Path is the fruition of the first six path factors. When you have walked and journeyed and practiced and used those six path factors the wisdom aspects arise right view and right intention are the two path factors in the wisdom category right view is understanding the four noble truths at a relative and ultimate level it's understanding the four noble truths at an intellectual level and a heart level at a mundane level and a supramundane mundane level no faith required here you have confidence you have proved to yourself that the eightfold path and the teachings of the Buddha are true they become true to you and finally we have right intention the intention of generosity the intention of compassion The intention of loving kindness. From that point on, everything you say and everything you do is directed by those three intentions. And your speech and action manifest skillfully in the world and everyone around you benefits from your practice of the Eightfold Path. And you have changed yourself Forever, never to go back again into that lust and greed and hatred and delusion. You have become a free human being. And I know most human beings do not want to become free. There are 600 million charge cards being used in America. And we don't even have that many people. So freedom is not high in the list for Americans. But if you're a Buddhist, it's the end result. Thank you for listening today. And as I was speaking, the sun came out, and it was a glorious day, and isn't life wonderful? Does anybody have any questions, quickly or slowly, before we get on to our chanting? It all Yes, yes. Um, what, what type of practice would be considered insight meditation? Okay, good question. What kind of practice would be considered insight meditation? Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of sensations. Mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of mental objects. Those are the four kinds of insight practice or mindfulness meditation found in that category they are designed to lead us to the three aspects of buddhist wisdom found in insight meditation those three aspects are suffering unsatisfactoriness impermanence change and flux and not self through insight meditation you come to a direct realization of the unsatisfactoriness of your life because of the change and flux in your life And you also come to the realization that you are not the person you think you are. That, in fact, when you look deeply and carefully, you find process rather than event. Did that help? Okay, thanks. Do you have a question? No? Okay. Anybody else? Good. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. Well, that's it. That was my talk on the Eightfold Path, given at the International Buddhist Meditation Center at the Sunday service. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info. K U S A L A info. If you'd like to know more about the International Buddhist Meditation Center, please visit ibmc.info ibmc.info If you'd like to hear more podcasts or talks that I've given, please visit dharmatalks.info That's dharmatalks.info If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info That's buddhabooks.info And last but not least, if you'd like to email me, my email address is Kusla at Urbandharma.org and I'll get back with you just as soon as I can. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.